Sue Smith is a true champion in our sport and has trained some of the best horses we've watched run down the alley. From the futurity world to the NFR, we have seen her win. And in the month of July, she won almost $45,000 winning Ogden, Nampa, and Cheyenne with an arena record setting run and is pushing her to pursue another NFR qualification this year. We could have multiple podcasts with Sue on all things training, but this conversation really let us in on her background, the first horses that made such a big impact in her career, the hardships that she's had to overcome, and some of the highlights of her career with her outstanding mare, Dash's Centerfold. We're cheering for Sue to finish up in the top 15 this year and hope you enjoy this conversation. This week's episode is brought to you by the REM Mask by Expert Equine. Not very often, we see a new product that really makes a difference like this one can in a performance horse's life. The REM Mask from Expert Equine helps horses sleep under artificial light that stay on in vet clinics and big event stall barns for a very little investment. Easy to use and your horse will thank you. Stay tuned to the commercial break to hear more or visit their website at xpertequine.com. Don't forget to check out our friends at BarrelRacing.com who have been helping us out with our new Monday morning segment, The Rundown. Visit BarrelRacing.com for all things barrel racing. Last week, we watched Cheyenne, and on our little rundown, we talked about getting Sue Smith on the podcast, and lo and behold, she happened to have a day off and agreed to talk to me, so thank you, Sue, for making time for us. You're welcome. Tell us a little bit about what has been going on in your life, since kind of what you probably planned on doing this summer is now taking on a life of its own. Yes, for sure. I would say that. That's a good description. Actually, um... I'm pretty goal oriented type person and I kind of, but at the same time, I kind of go with reality. Like if I have saturated colds that are hitting and I, I need to go that way. I do. If I have rodeo horses that I feel like I better take these horses and run them or I probably don't need to own them. And so that's kind of where I was at. And so I, I set goals for myself this year and thinking that I had Dash's centerfold and her colt you know, which she's not a clay seven now, but um, her son um, by a smooth guy, um, Diamond Center. And I'm like, well, I have a horse and a backup horse. So I think I'm going to go that way. And I only had one fraternity colt. And so I set the goals for myself this year. You know, it's like, I would, I really think I would like to go to the winter rodeos. That's, that was my thought process. I'm like, if I, I really think that centerfold um, could run at a blind first barrel, like at Houston, you know, yeah. that, that, that was my thought process. And, and, um, I ran her, oh gosh, where was it? It was top shelf breeders and the first barrel was blind there and she got it. And so ever since then I was thinking, you know, I, I, I'm going to go there, you know, so I, my goals this year back to that is were, were to do well in my circuit and, hopefully be in the top 30 so that I could possibly get into the winter rodeos next year. I think, I think you're going to do it. I think, (laughs) I think you're going to accomplish those goals. Yeah. It's, I, it's kind of surreal how things have come together for me. And, um, you know, I don't know. I did the, the the first year I went to the NFR, basically were my goals on, um, claimer, real claim the fame. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he exceeded them as well, and my goals were basically the same, and he had different goals, you know, than I did, and I feel like it's just like Groundhog Day, like, 
I feel like Centerfold's taking the reins, basically, and, and carrying me forward. and Going on a ride of her own. What was your summer kind of like up to that Ogden and Nampa weekend or week that was, you know, before Cheyenne? Like, did she, had she done well at the rodeos this year so far, obviously? Had you left the circuit at all, or did you stay kind of just close to home? Yeah, since I kind of set my goals last year, um, I went up from, oh, gosh, was it the pink buckle? I'm trying to think when um, Billings was. Yeah, October. On half, and I ended up third at Billings at at that rodeo, which counted for this year. Oh, perfect. Yeah, so half's been a big part. I ran him quite a bit earlier. And I ran him a little bit last fall, just kind of see what he'd do at the rodeos. And I think he placed at every one I took him to. I didn't go to that many, and they weren't, like, top holes, but he placed. Mm-hmm. So he kind of let me have some faith in him that way. And then, anyway, so I, I go down to Brawley, and I won on Centerfold. And then I went up from Brawley. I went to that Pants on Fire. No, yeah, it was the Pants on Fire race. And Centerfold... Um, run a 16.6. I think it might it might have been a 16.69. I'm not sure how fast of the six it was, but it was on a standard. Oh, wow. And Hef backed it up with a, I believe he ran a 16.9 on that pattern. And then I think that Haley Gibson and my two horses, it put only three of us in the 1D at that race. And there's quite a few runners. And then the next day, oh, and that was just, kickoff race and then the next day they had a slot race type deal and um half won it and ran a 16.8 on that it was a standard set but it was in indoors and then let me see I, I can't even really remember where I went from there but um ended up home and then went to Brawley I I think what did I do at um Did you, were you in any of the winter rodeos this year? Like, did last year get you into anything? Or you're just starting fresh this year? It's all this year, pretty much. Like I said, I took half, it's Diamond Center, that's his Mm -hmm. name. But I took him to, I think maybe a handful, maybe three rodeos up here in my circuit is all. You know, so I, I didn't qualify for anything doing that. But I just kind of got a little confidence in him handling it. Of course, I don't think I ran him any perks. I think I would just enter the slacks. But he was holding his own against some, well, you know what it's like out there. Yeah. So, I mean, you really just started it this this summer in Centerfold's yeah. on a mission. Mm-hmm. And I went, um, I went on down to some of those spring rodeos in California. Hit a barrel at Red Bluff in the short round to do really good, which that kind of sucks. Um, and then didn't have a lot of luck at Clovis. I might have hit a barrel here. Um, went down the lakeside, entered it over the over Clovis in case I didn't make it back, and went down there and, and I won that one on Centerfold. And um, I don't know, she's just been amazing this year. If I've hit some expensive barrels here and there, but when um when most of the time if that doesn't happen she she does really well for me 
Well, I um, want to dive into her career, but let's just take a step back and start. Tell us about kind of like your growing up and a little bit about your background. I mean, all of us have known you of a, a winner for so long, but I actually don't know. Like, did you grow up in the horse world? Did your parents have horses? Like, what led you into barrel racing? You know, that's kind of. I come from a different background than most barrel racers, for sure. I mean, my my family had nothing to do with horses, and I was I just was horse crazy from the very beginning. Like even as a tiny little kid, I can just remember all I could. I was absorbed with horses. Like it, I don't know why, but that it, I don't I don't know why people can be that way yeah. when they're not involved in that. But that was me, and. All I ever wanted was a pony, you know, or anything that even four-legged animals, you know, because horses had four legs, you know, yeah. just anything that had to do with horses. But so by the time I was, I think, 13, and my mom was a single mom, and she's, we were pretty broke. We, we didn't grow up with anything, you know, so we had to, you know, work for everything we had and and. I'm grateful for it. It makes me appreciate the things I do have now for sure. But um, my grandma, she was going to help me out. And so these friends of mine I went to school with, I grew up in Southern California. And I lived in Himmet at the time, which was huge in race horses, like all around. There's horse ranches everywhere, thoroughbreds, quarter horses. It was a big time in that, uh, what that was, dairies and horse ranches. And this friend that I went to school with, her, her parents worked at this quarter horse ranch, and she had horses and stuff. And she's like, we got this donkey. His name's Sinbad, and we're going to sell him. And I'm like, I want that donkey. <laughs> and I told my grandma, and my grandma bought me that donkey. I think she paid $25 for it or something. Oh, my gosh. And this friend of my mom's, he, he, he I always really liked him, and he's like, you can't train donkeys. They're stubborn and everything. And I trained this donkey to do, like, I, I would jump him. I could run him. Like, one time, like, him and I was also kind of a retirement town. And I go, and I went fast everywhere I went. But I figured out that if I carried two olive switches off the trees, I could make that donkey run. And I remember running by this two older people walking down the road on that donkey and I could hear the husband say to the wife how does she get that donkey to run oh my gosh that is so funny but yeah and then I showed him and I got in the local news for showing a donkey and winning at a little you know Jim Canna little place you know and then then I had these friends of mine they kind of took me under their wing this friend that was my age and her parents her dad was a barber and him and he cut all those ranchers you know horse ranch people's hair and stuff and he was looking out for me so he's like hey um i can't remember the name of the ranch but they go they got this horse it's mare and she's not cutting it on the track and they they'll give it to you if they think you if they think you're a fit so they take me out there and I'm, I'm 13, and um, they're like, it's going to, they have this horse saddled in this fancy barn, racehorse barn, and they bring her out. And it's a stock saddle, not a flat saddle. Mm-hmm. And they let me on her, and they let me have her. Like, and that right there, 
was how I became fearless because that horse, I'm not sure it was a perfect fit for a 10-year-old <laughs> girl that didn't have much experience, but she taught me a lot. That's wild. Um, so what what led you into barrel racing? I mean, obviously you kind of got this like racetrack type horse, but how did you get into the barrel racing world? Well, then I just like got, I was so absorbed with horses. I, mm -hmm. um, I, I started horse trading. I just kept tra trying to trade myself into better horses, you know, and stuff. And so I just kind of kept moving up and, um, had several horses. Well, then I thought I wanted to be a horse trainer. You know, and I honestly, I, w I lived with my grandparents at some point and they were pretty wealthy and they lived in an affluent area in, in San Diego. And so I, when I would be with them, um, there was Pony Club and there was all these rich girls with hunter jumpers and I kind of got involved with that and I thought that's what I wanted to do. In fact, honestly, I later on, I ended up in Idaho and married a bull rider and that's how i got involved with uh um wanting to be a barrel racer oh um, really but, like not until you were an adult then no no i didn't i mean i did a little jim canna and stuff when i was a kid and stuff yeah. but i never you know I, I i didn't know what direction i wanted to go with horses but i knew I, horses were going to be involved mm -hmm. but um then i ended up going to to school um, all my friends, close friends, were going to Rick's College. Their parents were sending them up there, and I wasn't going to go. And then when it came to close to the time they were going to leave, I'm like, I was feeling abandoned. And I'm like, I'm going. Because you could take your horse to okay. that. They had a horse program. So I, that's how I got to Idaho. And then um, from there, I mean, in, at, at the Rick's College, they had a rodeo team. And... Um, so we would goof around and practice with them a little bit, but we weren't on the rodeo team. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, just then I, I would hang out at the track up there and got to meet uh, a horseshoe race horse trainer. And his, his name is Keith Bowen. and he came, became a big part of my life in the direction that I took from that point. But he, um, anyway... I I just hang out there and help him, and, and he pretty soon I was riding colts with him because he was it was that time of year they were starting all those race colts and stuff. So and he he realized that I could ride, you know I rode quite a few horses so I was pretty handy about it. So and he just took me and just kind of guided me and taught me how to be a trainer I guess. And then it was time for him to leave to go to the summer meet in Boise, you know from you know Eastern Idaho, and and I didn't really have anything that do I was going to go maybe go back to California and he asked me he goes hey do you want to come work for me so I went with him and worked on the racetrack and I actually became his assistant trainer oh wow on the racehorses and I was galloping racehorses at that point and um ponying on race day and making money that way and stuff and then and then eventually that's where I met my husband Skeeter Smith and what future husband, I guess, we ended up getting married. And so I stayed up here. And honestly, I had a horse, pretty, which I thought was a pretty nice horse at the time. And I didn't want to mess him up, making a barrel horse out of him, you know, making an idiot out of him, whatever. And so I got tired of sitting in the stands watching him at the rodeos. And we went to all of them. And I'm like, I, I got to start running barrels or doing something. And so I trained this 
bulldog and horse to be a barrel horse and um, had some success on them right away. So then I, I guess I was hooked from then on. I, I went to a lot of Dale Urey clinics through a friend that kind of gathered me up up here and go, hey, come hang out with us because I was new to the area. And um, she really got me in the right path as far as if you're going to do this, you might as well learn to do it right. And um, it just went from there. I ended up, actually, I took that bulldog and horse to his clinic, and he told me, he tried to buy the horse from me. Oh, my gosh. pretty athletic, catty little horse, black, cute. And um, he's like, he tried to buy the horse from me, and then he told me at the clinic before I left, he goes, you know, if you if you keep riding that horse like you're riding them, you're going to wreck them. And, and, of course, I did, you know. <laughs> and anyway... I, I guess, you know, talk about learning from failures. I learned a lot from that failure that I created, but I also got myself out of it because I finally quit trying to win and just win, and I tried to go run that horse right. I was at a race, and I'm like, you know what? I'm so sick of this. It was like a two-day race deal after the first day I'm like, I'm so sick of this. This horse is going to go do it right. And I don't care if he's the slowest one here. And I won the race that day. (laughs) What a lesson. I I was going to say like, what were some of the things that you were doing wrong? Were you just trying to go fast and, you know, not riding smooth or, you know, what, what was that change that made you realize like, Oh, we got to do this different. You know, I think, I think probably my English background was it, it has its positive and ne- negative impacts on my barrel racing because, and I respect English and I learned a lot from writing English, uh, body control and stuff, but they have so much more contact. So mm. I was trying to ride with too much contact, basically doing too much, getting in my horse's way, probably, I would say at this point. And, okay. um, I had learned to give a lot of that up, you know, as far as that goes, you know, so I think that kind of hindered me at first just a little. Yeah. Like that want or desire to micromanage almost and like. Micromanage and then try too hard. Like I just felt like I, I needed to win so bad. I wanted to win so bad that I was my, I'd get in my own way. Like I'm like, for instance, maybe overrode my horse. Mm -hmm. He wasn't ready for it kind of deal, especially at that point. Not knowing what that was, I didn't know, you know, but I still wanted to win. So what was that horse's career like after that moment? Like, did you realize like, oh, I, I'm figuring this out now. Well, yeah, I was like, uh, and I sold him for a barrel horse, you know, and then I went on to the next one and that horse made like she, I won the amateur association honor which at that time was a big deal because you couldn't pro rodeo and amateur rodeo at the same time so the amateur rodeos were a lot bigger in that time okay and um anyway i sold that horse for quite a bit of money at the time mm-hmm. in fact it it created us to be able to purchase our our first place I, you know we bought property and put a a modular home on it and had acreage, you know, to selling that horse. So that then, um, and it was kind of funny because, you know, in a more local area and I'd go to all the little barrel races and, and 
girls would, this one girl in particular wrote up to me and she goes, I can't believe you, the course's name was Cowgirl. I can't believe you would sell Cowgirl. Like, you're crazy. And pretty much said it like that. And I'm, I just had had enough of it. And I'm not really an arrogant person, but I kind of was when I said this to her. I'm just like, you think I would have sold that mare if I didn't have one behind her? And that was probably one of the best horses I've had you know, one of yeah. the top horses I've had. And that horse's name was Added Sugar. And I got her from Ivan Astronaut. And she was a racehorse bred. And uh, she was. like I. Yeah. And then after I said it, I'm like, I hope I just didn't trust myself. <laughs> you know, but she lived up to it. I, I won so many things on that mare. It was unreal. I, you know, in the amateur deal. Yeah. I, you know what? I don't know, but I learned a lot, you know, speaking of learning a lot, I learned a lot from that mare because I rode her for so long and won so much on her that I just thought I was all that and that I could just make another one. And then when that time came, they weren't like her and I didn't, like, it didn't happen like I thought. It wasn't really all me. Yeah. Yeah, T- walk us through that because I always, you know, w- when I talk to people, it's always like that first really good horse makes you feel like, oh, this is easy. I've got this. And then you almost like that that next horse that's not is like, oh, gosh, what am I doing? It's like generally after you sell it too, right? Like you sell that really good one or they retire. And then so how did you like... What did you do? Start buying prospects? Did you buy, you know, more rejects or roping horses? Like, what did you do to keep kind of the training business going? Well, at that time, for financially, for a living, I was breaking colts. I'd been galloping racehorses, and when we got our place, and I I was um, at the racetrack, and I had rented stalls there in Idaho Falls and then I would gallop racehorses in between and start colts and keep my horses down there and then when we got our place I got that set up and moved out there and I was just starting colts for a living Okay. And but I was starting a lot of, you know I, I, I had a lot of racehorse friends and they, they would send those colts to me to start for the racetrack for, for the most part and um, I just keep track of them I'd keep like um, I I broke them. Like I, I got them where they loved circles and stuff. Mm-hmm. And stuff. And there's several different ways they start race horses. And sometimes they get them in the stall and go around the shed row. But I would I'd round pin them, kind of ray hunt, train them, get them broke, get used to ropes and stuff. Change you know go up circles in my arena, change leads, change directions. But I'd almost I'd almost put kind of a, I never really started them on barrels. But you could have from there. Okay. And then they would go to the track. And if they didn't make it on the track, they kind of used to dump those horses. And I'd be right there if I liked them. And then I'd, I'd try them. And honestly, um, one of the first horses, good dash to fame, came that way. Really? To, to that deal. Yeah. It was before dash to fame was a big deal. But that, they were so easy. They were so easy to start. They moved easy. They were just, I don't know. I And all of them that I started were that way. And I'm like, there's something to these horses. <laughs> yeah, they like, like their job. I won't, won't. They're user-friendly. Yeah. It's almost like I don't, I'm not really having to train them. They're letting me get away with murder, you know, mm-hmm. especially after some of the stuff I had rode. 
So when did you kind of get into the fraternity world? Because I wanted to talk about, I mean, you've had so much success at the rodeos, but then you've also had a ton of success in the fraternity world. So, I mean, what kind of made you get into that as well? Did you just have a couple young horses that you took that path or, I mean, walk us through that a little bit. That's kind of where it came from. Um, First of all, like going going to those Valuri clinics, and a lot of them were held in Utah. Mm-hmm. And that's when Jill Parker Atkinson was going younger going, and they would have these little fraternities, and she always did so good. Um, I'm trying to think of some other girls that I just, I wanted to be like them. I'm like, I want I want to train. I want their training and they're winning at the fraternities. And I really want to, that's what I want to do. Yeah. And then the, the mayor I told you about that um, taught me the lesson that I'm not, it wasn't on me. Her name was, again was Added Sugar. Yeah. Came off the tra- track. She's, um, God, she was, goes back to sugar bars on the bottom and, um, tiny charger on the top and I've kind of stuck with that a little bit um, okay but she um I, I got her from Ivan Ashman I was doing chores for Ivan Ashman big time racehorse breeder owner trainer had mm-hmm. world champion running horses but <clears throat> there was these three fillies in this pen one day and I was going out there and Ivan pulls me over we're dry and he pulls me over and he goes Sue, do you know anybody that wants those fillies? I'm going to sell them. They were coming three-year-olds, and they hadn't made it on the track or whatever. And I go, I know somebody that wants that little that little um, chestnut filly. And he goes, who's that? And I go, what's me? And he goes, well, you know, I want this. He goes, I want 1500 or something for her. Yeah. And I'm like, I, he goes, go get her. Just go get your trailer right now because this other horse trader guy was on his way to pick her up he told me and he goes go get her right now so this guy's name is Farron doesn't come and get her so um I go I just have one problem and he's like what's that I I don't have any money right now (laughs) (laughs) he's like you can work part of it off pay me 750 dollars and go get her wow so I ran and got my trailer and of course, she wouldn't load in my little tours, but <laughs> finally got her loaded, got her home. And anyway, long story short, I fraternity her. I, I trained her, made a fraternity horse out of her, and she won. She just was one of them, you know, mm-hmm. just one of your dream horse, the one in a million horse, she just did it. And so I fraternity her as a four-year-old and then just went on from there and had a lot of success on, on her. But what's kind of ironic about it is her granddam on the bottom side was a mare called Ivan's Sugar Chick and Blazing Jedalina's sire's dam was a full sister to that mare. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's cool. That was like way mm-hmm. before the time. Mm-hmm. Have you ever slept with the lights on? Could you do it for several nights in a row and still perform at your very best? Have you ever wondered about your horse? Unfortunately, at most big events, the lights must stay on all night long. But there is a solution. 
REM Restorative Equine Mask from Expert Equine. The REM mask blocks artificial light, allowing for optimal rest and recovery. My name is Bo Whitaker. I'm a veterinarian at Brazos Valley Equine Hospital in Salado, Texas. The whole goal of the REM mask is to prevent sleep deprivation. And sleep deprivation is going to lead to significant behavioral problems in horses. There are other things as far as stress goes, uh, gastric ulcers, a lot of things that can be secondary to the stress that you, you can see from sleep deprivation. So arrive at the show prepared with the revolutionary REM Restorative Equine Mask from Expert Equine. So when when you're when you're doing this and I mean like you said you you don't have the money to buy a $1500 horse but you're winning on them like did you have to sell them when they got good and just kept you know training and bringing them up or were there any that you kept and like they are the ones that paid your bills because you ran on them like how does your program evolve from that time You know I kind of both like that mare died on my place Okay. And um, I raised some colts out of her, and I didn't really get anything spectacular done on her colts, and I don't know why. There were some issues that came up, but and I'm just going to jump forward to this before I get back to it. But that horse that Jennifer Califatic is doing so well on, mm-hmm. it, that is that that horse's granddam is added sugar. Oh, wow. So... So she did come through, yeah. You know, but wasn't for me. And I owned that horse at one time. Oh, that cool. That was riding, but I didn't train him. But anyway, um, I um, have sold and had to sell. You know, like get him going good, and and I've sold him at all stages whenever you need money, whatever. Mm-hmm. But or I have, and but I've also sold him and made good money on him. I think you know. You know what it's like in in this business. You, you know you can paternity, you can win, and everything on those type of horses. But when you actually really make money on them, is if they turn out to be worth anything, and you do sell them. Yeah, that's when you actually, in my opinion, make money on those horses. But if you figure what your time is getting them to that point, are we really making money? <laughs> yeah, that's that's generally math we don't want to do. And that's so hard, especially for like someone like yourself that also rodeos. When they get so good, it's like you know how much time went into them. You don't want to sell them. But then when somebody knocks on your door and says, hey, I'm going to give you X amount of money. And you're like, well, God, that's going to pay a lot of my bills. Like you almost have to. I mean, it's it's hard. Yeah, it's it is. It can be hard at times, but at, at other times it's really rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, you know, it just depends on where I'm at. Like if if I was planning on going and rodeoing hard, I would not have sold Tina Turner. Yeah, but I wasn't there. I was riding a lot of colts right then, kind of in the fraternity mode, and um, not really planning on hitting the road hard because I never have liked that. But, yeah, um, I you know sold her and, and look what she's done for somebody else and it's so exciting to watch horses that I had a hand in whether I owned them or you know like for instance um watching Tito win Cheyenne with Andrea such a good friend of mine you know yeah. having a hand in it was I, I don't I probably was more excited about that than than 
when I won it, although I was very excited about it. <laughs> yeah, no, it, that was so cool. And, and we talked about that a little bit. I mean, just seeing like, you know, the horse you trained last year win it, and then you come back and win it this year. It's like, well, you better get a Sue Smith horse if you want to have a chance at Cheyenne. Like, they <clears throat> they hunt those barrels and those big pens. Yeah, probably because of my setup, but I do have fences around my barrels at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, my setup at home. Yeah. I, um, I don't know. I, it's kind of funny. I try not to overthink things. Like at Cheyenne, I was like, before the short run, I thought, what if I, what if I won this? Right. You know, to myself. Like, yeah. I would never say it out loud, but I was just like, what if I won this? And, my horse won it last, a horse I trained won it yeah. last year, and my horse won it this year, what a, and then I was like, so get that out of your head, <laughs> get that out of your head, and then I was warm, I was exercising my horse on the track, and they come by me with the saddles in a ATV, you know, just, they were all stacked, the trophy saddles in the yeah. back of this, and I, I was like, look away, don't even look over there. That's funny. Let's we're kind of detour a little bit. We'll come back to your story and because I want to hear about some of those wins that you know really made your career. But I mean, mentally, you've been doing this, you know, at the fraternity ranks, the rodeo ranks, and I mean, how do you like keep yourself centered, or what? What do you work on with your mental game to like? keep yourself winning, but yeah, not go down those paths. Cause I struggle with that a lot. Like I always think about the outcome and I have to be like, stop Kayla. You have to focus on the process. Like you, you have to focus on the process cause then the outcome doesn't matter. But like, how do you keep your mind so good to stay so competitive? You know, that's hard. And sometimes I, myself and you know, that's all I can speak from mm-hmm. is you get too wrapped up in the things you know, when I first started running barrels, my father-in-law, he believed in me. The guy was amazing. He's been in a bar. You know, he, he is a great racehorse trainer, and he was always, like, betting on me, you know, just in my corner. And when I'd be out there working horses, and he, he, when, he didn't say a lot, but he goes, Susie, you're just trying too hard. And at the time, I was like, now how do you try too hard? You can't yeah. try too hard. But through him being a professional and being a winner himself, he could see that I was getting in my way, that I was trying too hard. And then I would get so nervous, you know, like um, my arms would go numb before a race. And this good friend of mine um, that got me to go to the clinics with her and really kind of guided me, um, she would say, just get mad at it just get mad at it. Don't let it take over. That's something you can get mad at. So I would get mad at it and boom, gone. You know, but, um, it's, it's too, you know, you have to like focus on the run that you are making. Like, Mm -hmm. this is how I do it. Like I try not, just like I said, I try not to think about what if I got up there on that podium and got to, you know, had those two horses do so good there. And I'm like, get that out of your head. Yeah. That hasn't happened yet. That you don't even. Why would you even let that in your head? Mm-hmm. You, that's you're you're gonna bite yourself in the butt doing that. And so I'm like, you have to make that run. You got to make that one run, and it has to be the best run you can make on your horse. And if it's good enough, it's good enough. If it's not, it's not. 
but you got to go make one run at a time. I And that's the way I look at it. Yeah. When, when Summer set that arena record, and I could hear it, we couldn't see it, but yeah. I'm sitting there kind of back in the holding pan, and I, I'm just like, good for her. That's amazing. She set the arena record last year and came and broke it. Good for her. I'm pro- I, maybe I can win second. <laughs> Right. second place too but at the same time i'm like you got you got your game plan just mm-hmm. go through with it and and for instance you know for for center when i heard my and seen my time i wanted to get off in the middle of the arena and hug my hopes <laughs> you know but i was pretty much shocked that yeah i went that fast for one thing but um but again i think you just trust your training you, you know and in my opinion, I guess another instance of, of, you know, maybe thinking positive is to be able to trust your training. Um, Nampa, Mm -hmm. to me, it's been a tough pin for me because the way the alleyway, it's pretty straight to the first barrel and then it's real tight, you know, in between them, but it shoots a lot of horses up that pin. And so it's hard to get back around and get over in time to really get around the second barrel real good you know mm-hmm. and i'm like you know what you train from this corner your horse is used to it you're good you know and so i sent her in there like like I, she was good with it you know and i think that's the power of positive thinking mm-hmm. you know if you, you just think of basically i was going to trust my training so that gave me confidence enough to go ahead and give it a try you know mm-hmm Instead of trying to help her get around it or do this, I trusted it to work. I just, I, I think that's so valuable and I really appreciate you sharing that because, I mean, somebody, you know, like myself or listeners listening, like, we might get to the point that, like, you know, you've been doing this way longer than I have, but you still have those thoughts of, you know, focusing Absolutely. on the outcome or, you know, like, hey, like, they also have to stop themselves get back on track, focus on their job. And like, it's just a reminder that like everybody has to kind of balance that and like get their mind right before they go through the alley. It's not just, you know, professionals that have it under lock and key. It's everybody has to kind of focus on that. I believe so. And I, you know, I'm probably my very worst critic Mm -hmm. and, you know, nobody's tougher on me than me myself. Um, so sometimes I, I have to lighten up on myself, but um, I'm no different than anybody else. And if anybody tells you they're, they're lying, you know. Everybody I, goes through it. Tell us a little bit about staying positive. And I mean, we've, we, we'd like to talk about the highlights and the wins, but you've also been through some really hard obstacles in your life and have overcome them to you know, stay successful, whether it be personal life, horse injuries, things like that. Um, And I think sometimes other people hearing those struggles really, really helps them as well. So will you share a little bit on like how you've overcome some things to, to get to where you still are today, where you're able to like think positive and like keep going? You know, like as far as my personal life goes, I've had some pretty tough, hard knocks lately that I never saw coming. And I've always felt like, you know, I've always come from the background, like, if you know, like, if, I, if you want something, you work hard enough, you can get it. And I've always been pretty 
really healthy and very, I've always been athletic, you know, Mm -hmm. as far as running track in school, I I was fast, I could run, I could, you know, I could just, I was capable of that kind of stuff. And to an extent, thinking I was a little invincible, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I, I got slammed to a screaming stop on that when I found out that I, I ended up having cancer and HPV type cancer that really set me back. Um, first of all, when you get that diagnosis, anything with the C word will scare you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was scared to death. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is happening to me. Why me? And then I'm like, why not you? I mean, look at all the people out there that are going through this. I mean, why would it be any different? Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. It was tough. It was really hard. I went through a lot of um, soul searching, you might say. I um, got, uh, I I don't know, I kind of lost my belief in the Lord because I was mad at him because my mom passed away and I prayed and prayed and prayed for him to save her and it didn't happen. So I was mad. So I I lost that. Um, I got, I gained it back really fast <laughs> because I was scared and I'm like, you know what, if I die, I had all kinds of people around me to support me, mm-hmm. all kinds of people, like uh, unbelievable. And, and you will find out who your real friends are under those circumstances. But, um, I thought, you know, if you die, you're going to die all by yourself, you know? And I, I just, that was the hardest thing. I'm like, I reached out to the Lord and he reached back out to me. Like, I, I, I don't even know how to explain it, but overwhelming, overwhelming, full-on sense of pure love overcame me. And from that moment on, I was like, I got this. I'm good. Wow. Whatever happens, I'm, I'm going to deal with it. And they told me that I was going to have like six weeks or so of, you know, treatments and it was going to be brutal, especially the type I had, you know, where they, how they were going to treat it and stuff. And I just got a calendar and I started marking the days off and I go, I've got, first of all, I didn't start my treatment when they wanted me to because Centerfold, I was fraternity in her and she was going to win the W Para world champion fraternity horse. And it was my goal to have her achieve that. I, I don't know why that was so big to me, but I had to care. I had to follow through with that for her. And um, also that year, she she won the Epistat Fraternity Horse of the Year, too, and won over 200000 But anyway, I followed through with that and then went into my treatments. And I just marked it off. I'm like, okay, I have this much time that I'm going to have to time out of mm-hmm. my life and deal with this. And then when I... I'm done when I mark that last one off, get to ring the little bell in the cancer treatment place that says you're done, then I'm going to go on with my life, you know? So I, that's what I did. You know, I just, and it was brutal. There was times it was, it was brutal. And, um, at that time, the worst part, the, the hardest thing that I had to do at that point was tell my son, Mm -hmm. BJ. And I did, and of course he was really, really upset. And I'm, I'm just listen. I'm gonna beat this. I promise, I'll beat it for you, no matter what. And so I did. Like I got through it after, and then after, after you, when you think 
that you're going to be done and you're just going to pick up and go on. It doesn't happen like that. That All that poison's still in your system. After I was done with the treatments, I really hit rock bottom, but I just kept pulling myself up, pulling myself up. And I finally gained my strength back, but, um, physically, but it wasn't, it wasn't easy, but I don't, I don't know. Um, I think that because of my, um, competitive nature and the fact that, um, I, I felt like I, I know how to win. I can beat this, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I, I had the right, I, I had the positive attitude. I, I learned to have a positive attitude from my competition, so I carried it into that. In fact, I told my EMT doctor when I first got diagnosed, I was pretty scared, and I, I just said, would you please do, I had him on the phone, and I'm like, will you please do me a favor? Will you treat me like, um, like advise me uh, as you would a family member? You know, I, I was scared, mm-hmm. so... And he's like, yeah. And I go, will you, do, will you do one more thing for me? Will you just Google my name? <laughs> just Google my name and you'll know I'm a winner. And I will beat this. <laughs> I can imagine what he was thinking. But I had to say it. You know, I just like, this guy's got to be on my team 100%. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Have people in your corner that believe in you as much as you believe in yourself. Absolutely. So I I did say that too. I was kind of embarrassed afterwards, but I I did. I I guess I had to. I don't know. But afterwards, I'm back in his office, and um, a couple of cool things about the doctors. I was in this EMT doctor's office, and he's like, "You're good." He scoped my throat and everything. He goes, "You're good." And this guy doesn't say a lot, and he's he's a really good doctor too. Yeah. And um, he's like you're tough and I, I I flash back at kind of what I went through and I'm like shaking my head now I really wasn't that tough <laughs> and he's like <clears throat> he doesn't say anything for a minute or two and then he comes back and he goes yeah you're tough and let me tell you why and he goes 80 percent of the people that have the type of cancer you have they don't survive and if they do they never come back like you Wow. Did you know that beforehand? I got mixed um, reviews Mm -hmm. on my prognosis. Like, one would, it just depended on who you talked to. I had a a really good friend in California that is a hairdresser, but he does all the doctors and their wives down there in Southern California and Anyway, he 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 knew this guy that um, had a radio radiation center, you know, and he had that guy call me, and that guy called me, and I'm like, you know, because I'm like, what should I what should I do, you know, all this stuff that doesn't really matter. It's like closing the barn door after the horse got out, kind of questions, and he's like, listen, they're finding out with what you have, they don't even need to. He gave me such positive hope mm-hmm. that I just went with it I just went with what the positive things he told me you know and I guess I, honestly I really do think it was my mental attitude that got me through it yeah. um in the radiation they I they mold this thing around your face and strap you to a table and then they have this machine come over you it's it's awful like mm-hmm. but when I 
I would lay on that machine thinking, take this cancer, take this. Yeah. That was my way of fighting it. I'm like, How, what do you think now? You know, but that was my outlook to it. You know, so I really do think it carried me through. I really, really do. And um, another doctor that I had, he, he came in one day and he was late. And he's like, man, I've been on the phone. I'm this 33-year-old girl, young mother. I just had to order hospice for her. And I had to argue with the insurance company. They didn't want to pay for it. I was was on the phone longer than I wanted to be. That's why I'm late to our appointment. And he goes, I would have done it for you. And I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm fine. Yeah. (laughs) And then he goes, but then when I see people like you, I know what I'm doing is worth it. Mm. You know, so, I mean, those kind of things. I mean, I, I would never, ever want to go through it again. But the lessons that I learned going through it really helped me with my life. Like, I come out of that, like with a whole different outlook on life and what was important, what didn't matter to me. And another thing that came from that is, of course, you know, I have, I have so many really, really good friends. Mary Walker's one of them. Mm-hmm. She knew I was going through it. Andrea Busby was riding around with her at a barrel race. And Mary asked Andrea, how's things going? And Andrea just lost it and just told Mary that Jeff had the same thing I had mm-hmm. and they were devastated they were just learning about it they were going through all the things I went through you know and I was ahead of him yeah. and later on um, Andrea goes I never tell my personal problems to anybody and she doesn't I know her well enough no to know mm-hmm. no she doesn't but Mary's like you need to get a hold of Sue Smith and so from from that Andrea did reach out to me. I never talked to Jeff once. But Jeff added up all the texts and the phone calls, and it was thousands of them. And I came out of, I, for some reason, and I knew Andrea from Rhode Island, and mm-hmm. I, I liked her, you know, but we weren't real good friends. We were acquaintances. Yeah. And, um, there was some reason in me that I felt like I I needed to get them guys through this. I like that something good is going to come out of this. It's going to be me leading them through this. And I knew every step that they were going to go through. And I knew and and I knew what what ne- what was coming next. And it was never better, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. But I would keep reassuring them. Yes, that's that happened to me I got through it you can get through it you know and I but I wouldn't tell them what was next yeah that I would be there to help them yeah that this too will pass mm-hmm. you know and for some reason it made me heal a little more too I I don't I don't know how to explain it but it was something that I felt like I I needed to do mm-hmm. you know to to make what I went through worth you know, a reason or something. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Want more Sue? Head on over to patreon.com and subscribe to The Money Barrel today. You'll gain immediate access to an extended episode with Sue Smith and so much more. If you're already listening on Patreon, we can't thank you enough for the support. Don't forget to check out this week's sponsor, the REM Mask by Expert Equine. Don't wait until you get to the event and wish you had a mask. Add it to your packing checklist, a staple item to have in your trailer when hauling. There are so many benefits that come from a well-rested horse at an event. 
Go to Expert Equine's Facebook page and tell them how it helped your horse. Visit their website at xpertequine.com. All right, everyone, run fast, be safe, and we'll see you soon.